different episode of Correspondence. As most of you are probably aware, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan has not been going smoothly. Troop numbers have dwindled over the past few months as the United States prepared to leave Afghanistan by President Joe Biden's August 31st deadline. But the Taliban took control astonishingly fast, seizing province after province, and finally, on August 15th, they seized the capital city, Kabul. It's been a disaster in so many ways, from tragic images of desperate refugees trying to hang on to the outside of planes as they take off from the airport in Kabul, and people literally handing their babies to Marines over the barbed wire fence surrounding the airport. The United States is still trying to get its people out, and as of this weekend, President Biden says discussions are underway to potentially extend the airlift beyond that original August 31st deadline. So why am I talking about this on our show? Well, my guest today is a history writer at Coffee or Die magazine, which coincidentally is where I work. Matt Freitas has written numerous pieces about the Taliban's original rise to power and reign in Afghanistan during the 1990s, and he offers useful context for the present situation. We did record this on Thursday, so some elements and references may be a little bit outdated because this is a very rapidly evolving situation, but we also talk about the Taliban's impact on arts, culture, and education, which are subjects we feel very strongly about here on Between Lewis and Lovecraft, and Matt and I also talk about some books and other media that people can look into if they're interested in learning more about Afghanistan. So without further ado, here's the episode. Matt Freitas, thank you for uh, joining me today. For those who don't know, we actually work together, although it's one of those weird situations where everybody's remote, so I've only ever seen you on a computer screen. This is true. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm excited to be here. Of course, Um, and you host a podcast called Late Night History, right? That's correct, and uh, I've released four episodes so far, and it's kind of like an extension from uh, a microblog I have on Instagram of the same name. Awesome. And that started first, right? Yep. That started uh, February, February 22nd, 2018. And it just came by the idea that I'd post uh, one story every night. And I did it like for three years straight. I just didn't like miss a, miss a, um, like a post. And I just been doing it ever since. And then it evolved into a podcast. That's crazy. So were you doing that before you started working at Coffee or Die? Because you've been here quite a bit longer than I have. Yep. So uh, Coffee or Die started in, or the magazine launched in June of 2018. And my first byline was actually in August of 2018. And that was back when we were doing just um, like a story a month. So that was pretty crazy. Oh my gosh. You're one of the like OG writers. (laughs) Yep. So um, tell me a little bit about your backstory. Like where are you from? And then how did you get involved with Coffee or Die? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts called uh, East Bridgewater. And I'm always like a history mind. So like our history for the town, we built, we had uh, cannons and muskets for the American Revolution. And then the town next door is called Whitman. And that's where uh, the chocolate chip cookie was invented, which is awesome. And then the, then a sit, the city, the next city that's closest is called Brockton. And that's where the greatest uh, heavyweight boxer, his name is Rocky Marciano, and he was the real life inspiration for the Rocky movies. So that's like where I'm kind of like growing up. 
and uh so i went to high school like played sports growing up um then i went to college i went to a small state school called bridgewater state university in uh, massachusetts and i studied uh, criminal justice because my vision like or my like childhood dream i wanted to go into the military and then after the military i was going to go transition into something like a federal law enforcement type career and that didn't end up working out for me so i kind of had to like find like a different um a different path and something i was always interested in was writing and i just kind of went all in on it and found my find myself to uh with coffee or die eventually that's awesome and that's crazy that like you grew up in an area that is just entrenched in history um and i feel like as a kid that could have been you know something you don't really appreciate like what kid is like oh this is so cool i live in massachusetts which is like the center of america's birth basically um but that's awesome that you kind of took that experience and have made it like central to everything you do i mean you have some of the the coolest weirdest stories on our website <laughs> yep. i take passion in those having those weird and like uh just just like interesting stories so there's a couple of those that I definitely want to talk about at the end of our discussion. Um, but we're, what we're talking about today is a little bit more serious. Um, this week, kind of, we've all transitioned into Afghanistan coverage, um, of course, with the, the Taliban um, invading and quickly taking control of the entire country. Um, the president fled on Sunday, um, and that's the same day that they kind of stormed into Kabul and asserted the new regime, basically. Uh, but the Taliban are nothing new to Afghanistan, of course. And you kind of summed that up very nicely in um, an explainer story that you did either yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday. So that came out yesterday, I think. Um, yeah, I've written a few. Um, so yesterday and the day before, I think. Yesterday and the day before. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is a group that's kind of notorious for a lot of, um, you know, human rights violations um, and also the impact on you know, art and education is another big thing. And that's kind of the tie-in for our show here, because of course we're very into art and literature and that kind of stuff. Um, so that's why I wanted to talk to you today about um, some of your writing about this. Um, so just to start, can you kind of like sum up some of the, the history of this? Obviously it's a decades long history, but particularly in the nineties when we really saw what a Taliban uh, regime in Afghanistan looks like, like what, what did that look like for education and the arts? Sure, yeah, I'll just start with um, like the general. So like before the Taliban, uh, there was a war called the Soviet-Afghan War, and that lasted from 1979 to 1989. And that was fought between the Afghan resistance, who were known as the Afghan Mujahideen, and the Soviet Union. And um, eventually when the Soviet Union, they collapsed in 1991, and their funding to the puppet Afghan government uh, stopped in 1992. So when that happened, there was an Afghan civil war and that Afghan Mujahideen, they all turned on each other and started fighting in, for, uh, for 1992 to 1996. So where the Taliban comes in is Talib, like the Taliban the, uh, in, Pash, in the Pashto language, it means students. And um, in the Northern Pakistan region, uh, there were these uh, madrasas, so like religious schools. And that's like where that like that ideology like formed. And then in 1994, they moved to uh, a city called Kandahar. 
and that's where they like really got their footprint and they seized the power in, in Kabul, which like, that's like where the main stuff is going on right now in, um, 1996 and they 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 um ruled until 2001 until obviously like the u.s invasion but um that's just like the history of like that and then when it comes to like their brutality so i so one of the stories i did i interviewed a former uh cia analyst officer and paramilitary officer and he gave me some like interesting tidbits how like um like when the Taliban first came in, they provided like a brief point of stability, which you're seeing like that, like obviously there's like some pockets of violence, but then once they started instituting their like interpretation of Islamic law, that's when like the real um, violence erupted. Um, so like examples of that, like maybe just, or the attitude towards education and arts. So like children, over the age of eight, they couldn't go to school. Um, music was banned. Uh, artwork banned. Um, clothing. So like for men, they can't wear like Western uh, suits or any of that. They have to wear uh, traditional uh, dre traditional um, dress. And then women, uh, they used to be able to have the hijab, which when you I don't know if like your listeners are aware, but that's like, if you see like a journalist reporting overseas that you can see their face, but now they have to wear the burqa, which is like a full, um, full dress where you have no identity. Right. It's, you know, the black head to toe, basically right. everything covered. And I kind of went on like a rambling there. So stop me when I'm, uh, try to keep no, me on track. I mean, that's all really good context. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I think that the burqa is kind of the the symbol that, you know, a lot of people have in their mind when they think about Afghanistan under Taliban rule. Um, going back a little bit earlier, um, you know, you always see those photos circulate of the 1980s or whatever, showing like Afghan women in like t-shirts and short skirts or whatever. Like, are, are those accurate de depictions of what it was like before the Taliban? Yeah, before the Taliban. And I think it was before the Soviet Afghan war as well. So probably I think you'd have to double check me, but I think it'd be during the 50s and 60s. Okay, so even a little bit earlier. Yeah. So there were the impacts on school and dress and like, what about attitudes toward like actual expression and, and written expression? Were there rules for that in the 90s? Uh, I know that for their radio, they, they, their first radio broadcasting was in the 1920s. And then that radio eventually evolved into the, I think it was the 1960s where they could like broadcast like news and stuff like that. But then once, once the Taliban came into power, the radio, they, nobody got, nobody could listen to the radio. And was that for like, like control purposes, like keeping news from being disseminated or criticism? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And then again, this is a group that has like historically been pretty devastating to like historical and cultural sites um I mean like in the early 2000s I think 2001 even um it was when they dynamited the two like massive Buddha statues that were like 1400 years old um and you know there was a lot of like looting and destruction of other artifacts too but just like 
huge impacts on on culture and history um, and the arts by association. And there was another thing I recently recently saw in the news. There was an amusement park where um, you saw like the Taliban. They were like playing, or they were like um, they were just in that. They were just like experiencing what it was. And then a later news report was that there was an amu- the amusement park was uh, burnt down. So it's just like that's oh my just, gosh. yeah yeah so much destruction. Um, and then obviously you know they're their reign kind of ended, what was it, in the early 2000s or when like were they officially kind of driven out of of the mainstream? The Taliban? Yeah, so uh, it was when the U.S. invaded. They, the Taliban uh, went to the Pakistan border and, and into tribal areas because they didn't want to, uh, you know, Die. fight the U.S. <laughs> exactly. Um, did things like rapidly improved since then did they go back to pre-taliban status or like what has afghanistan looked like culturally and like from an arts and education standpoint over the last 20 years yeah so it really evolved um so like after the taliban like left um there was a they opened up an american university of afghanistan in the city of kabul um you know uh everybody like women men and women have get get got their identity back like um girls boys men and women can express themselves like whether it's uh, makeup or just how they want to dress uh there's like a music scene that that emerged of pop and uh rock um and there's another, another thing um if you so this might be like a tangent but if you go on snapchat and you go to the snap map you can like look and you can like tap like a place in like some random like country and you can like do that for Kabul and you'll see like normal Afghan kid, uh, kids or adults and they're playing like video games like play- PlayStation 5 like I would be playing it. it it's just like it's just like how it evolved you know it's really cool and there's also um there's also like a sports scene that emerged and um, in 2009, there was an Australian skateboarder, and he went to Kabul, and he started teaching all like these young kids how to skateboard. And he quickly found that girls were drawn to uh, the sport of skateboarding. And he started this skate park called Skatistan. And, he's just, and I guess like at its height, it had like 300 girls a week skateboarding, which was just amazing. Yeah, um, I, I watched that video that you sent me on Skatistan, um, and they've expanded a lot since then, too, to, like, places in Africa and I think um, Asia as well. Um, but, yeah, seeing that in Afghanistan was really interesting because, like, they were talking about how girls can't play a lot of sports because, you know, that would require them to be out in public and, like, in the view of unrelated people, which is just, like, egad, that can't happen. Um, But skateboarding was like a a really good outlet for them and something that, you know, the organizers of that program hoped would, you know, um, not necessarily change attitudes in the adults, it seemed like, but, you know, having girls out there alongside their male classmates, they kind of hoped that the, the boys would see them and be like, this isn't like, she's not just like some girl off in the corner or whatever, like she can do things. She's very talented at skateboarding and kind of just break down those those barriers and stigmas a little bit right and it said um or like historically it said that taliban banned the state of play 
So like stuffed animals or toys, those are all banned sports, you know, stuff like that. So it's like really cool to see how post Taliban it evolved and. Right. Um, And I mean, obviously now the situation is, is unfolding very rapidly. Like it's hard to keep track of what's going on, but um, with the Taliban being back in power, at least for the moment, like, how do you see that moving forward? Like, are, are they going to go back to their rules of the nineties or is there any hope that, you know, kids can still play and skateboard and, and, you know, girls can still go to school and read books. Yeah. I think what the Taliban, this is just my perspective, but in, in that perspective is based off of what happened in the nineties is the Taliban is going to promise and give empty promises basically like all the school the women or the girls and the women they can go to school but you're but those universities right now are closed still so it's just they provide empty promises and um so what i what i think like the future outlook um it i don't think it's a good outlook um and i think what you're seeing right now, there's a uh, resistance going on. And I think it's called the, I could be butchering it. I probably am, but the Panjshir Valley. And it's led by the son of a legendary uh, Afghan, uh, Ahmad Shah Musud. And he was known as the lion of the Panjshir. And um, so that's like a resistance that's going on right now. And I think that for the past 20 years, the Afghan people have uh, experienced a taste of freedom. So I think in like Kabul and maybe the bigger cities, uh, there might be like an underground resistance that forms in opposed to the Taliban. And you had mentioned like Snapchat earlier too. So I'm a part of me wants to be hopeful that with, with increased technology and stuff now, like it's, you have more freedom to like share dissenting viewpoints, even if it's just like in secret online. So from that perspective, I'm like a little bit hopeful that, like you said, the Afghan people have had a taste of, you know, increased freedoms to whatever extent and will be more reluctant to give it up. But um, I'm also a little bit concerned about like the the so-called like brain drain. So, you know, the people who can't have the means or the, the know-how to flee the country, like if they're all leaving, do, what kind of position does that leave Afghanistan in if everyone who's able to find a way out or obtain a visa just abandons ship? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's going it, to, we're, we're living in mo- like history right now. It's unfolding before our eyes, right? So it's like, we can only predict what's going to happen. But yeah, it's just, uh, I think what's, what's in the future is going to be a lot of um, violence and hopefully, you know, something turns around. I mean, like you said, Taliban are full of empty promises. It's really um, surprising now because we've got like the spokesperson for the Taliban is on Twitter and like making all of these statements about how like, oh, they're being told not to destroy relics. And, you know, they went to some hospital and told female doctors they could keep working and stuff like that. But on the other hand, like, does that just are they going to keep those promises after all of the attention is off of them in, you know, a week or a month or a year? Yeah, that's definitely a good point to bring up. The international spotlight is on Afghanistan right now, right? So once that goes away, you know, what's going to happen? And I personally think the Taliban are going to uh, go back to their old ways or not even their old ways, the ways that they live by, you know, they're a militant group. 
they are violent and they you know kill people so um uh, it's a really concerning time definitely yeah um and then one of the other things i wanted to talk about was um just like other media and art sources like authors from afghanistan um one of the ones that i and probably like most people who know any novelists from this region um that's khalid hosseini and i hope i'm saying his name right um who's of course the the author of the kite runner and a thousand splendid sons which were both like new york times bestsellers just a little bit of a brief overview of him as a person um, he's an Afghan-American novelist and also UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Goodwill Ambassador. Uh, he was born in 1965 in Kabul. Uh, his dad was a diplomat and his mother taught Persian at a girls' high school. Um, so obviously like a very educated family and also um, of a higher class, which class systems are, are really big in that um, society. And like have huge repercussions and dynamics, which is something that he um, references a lot in his novels. Um, when he was five, their family moved to Iran where his dad worked for the um, embassy in Tehran, the embassy of Afghanistan. Uh, in 1973, they returned to Kabul, um, but moved to Paris around 1976 when his dad got another job there. Um, then of course the Soviet invasion happens um, and his family uh, sought political asylum in the U.S. and moved to San Jose, California. Uh, and he went on to like become a doctor um, for, I think, 10 years uh, until quitting after he started publishing novels. Uh, but they had a lot of family and friends back in Kabul and sometimes would hear news that they had been imprisoned or killed or disappeared. Like there are people who to this day, they have no idea what happened to them during the Taliban's regime, which is just like unfathomable for me sitting here in the US to think that that could happen. But it's something that we're seeing again now as like, you know, um, Afghan interpreters or other people who worked with the US government are now desperately trying to get their families out of that country and sometimes have lost contact with them and, and have no idea where they are. Um, so Hosseini had um, a good deal of survivor's guilt um, as this was all going on and he was living safely over here. Um, and that's a feeling that I think he incorporates really strongly, especially in his first novel, which was The Kite Runner. I don't know if you've read that one, Matt. I have not. Um, that's a, a really good one. His follow-up was A Thousand Splendid Sons. And the rise of the Taliban during the 90s factors into both plots pretty heavily, um, but the novels are radically different. Like The Kite Runner um, depicts the friendship between two young boys of different classes, basically, um, and then follows one of them um, into adulthood and he has to deal with like the guilt of something that happened during their childhood. Um, and then A Thousand Splendid Sons is about um, like this mother-daughter relationship between two women who are married to the same like very abusive man. Um, and then that shows kind of the Taliban's, um, I, the situation for women in Afghanistan was not great before the Taliban, but it just shows how that like escalated once they came into power. So it's kind of got, they're both fiction, obviously, but they have the historical parallels. Um, and for me reading both of these, I think I was in high school when I read both of them, it was just like a really eye-opening introduction to that. Like um, now I like, I, I appreciate nonfiction a lot more now, but as a younger person, like novels were basically 
the only way that I would get interested in that. Like I didn't want to read some history book, which was probably very different than you as a high schooler, Matt. <laughs> yeah, well, like for me, uh, like I was the same way actually um, growing up, like I liked reading fiction and writing like now or going through high school, college, and then like now it's mostly just nonfiction, but I need to really like dive into some fiction again. Yeah, it. I definitely feel like I have... Um phases almost like I'll read nothing but fiction for months or even a year and then I'll get on like a memoir or or nonfiction kick and read nothing but that so are there like other authors from that area that you're familiar with or other artists who um you think that people should be following if they want kind of like a real first person look at what that region is dealing with off the top of my head um you know, as far as like uh, authors and like artists, I, I'm not really uh, super familiar with, but as far as like books or movies that or TV shows or other mediums that people should check out, um, as far as like a movie, I think people should uh, watch the Charlie Wilson War. And that talks about the CIA's involvement in an operation called Operation Cyclone. And that was when they were arming the... Uh, that was when the CIA armed the Afghan Mujahideen during that Soviet-Afghan war. And that'll give you like a inside look into like the foreign policy of uh, the U.S. And then as far as like books or in that, uh, before we get into the books, um, there's another, there's a TV series called The Looming Tower. Oh man, my voice just cracked so bad. <laughs> the, the Looming Tower. And uh, that was basically, so it's on Hulu right now and I'm actually working my way through it, but uh, it was basically the relationship between the FBI and the CIA before uh, 9-11. And then it just kind of goes into, um, you know, the broader foreign policy. And I think those are two good, um, at least from the U.S. perspective. Um, but in for books, there are two books I'd recommend. One is uh, came on a recommendation to me by Mark P., I don't want to say his last name, not because it's not out there. It's just, I don't, I, I don't want to butcher his last name and I respect him. So I'm just going to say Mark P. And uh, he uh, recommended a book called Caravans by James Michener. I think I'm saying the author correctly. And basically that was a, it was a, it's a fictional story about a young foreign service officer in Afghanistan post-World War II. And um, it was basically just like, describing like the history and like what Afghanistan was like in like the 50s and 60s so that's uh that's one book recommendation and then the other book recommendation I have actually in front of me it's called oh man it's called America's Great Game the CIA's Secret Arabists in the Shaping of the Modern Middle East whoa so that's for the camera I don't know if you're doing this so is that um that sounds like nonfiction then right yeah, that's a nonfiction book. And that's, it's really fascinating because it talks about like the CIA and uh, their involvement in all these different Middle Eastern countries. Uh, not so much uh, Afghanistan, but like Syria and like, all, like Iran and like the coups. And you'll just like get like a really inside scoop on the intelligence and basically the US involvement since like in that region. It's not like a new thing. It's like the global war on terrorism, 01 to now. It's not a new thing. So, uh, yeah. So those are my two recommendations as far as that. 
That's awesome. It sounds like um, good books to read up on. And also I, I like the the TV show recommendations too, because I feel like that's sometimes a little bit easier to fit into busy schedules. <laughs> yeah, definitely lots of, of literature to and you know, both fiction and nonfiction to read up on out of that um, country. And obviously Khaled Hosseini, um, he lives in America, so he's able to write these things. It's just like really frustrating and sad for me to think of all of the stories that can't get told from people living in Afghanistan, because like, can you even imagine trying to publish a novel like that? Right. It's crazy. Yeah. So obviously like this has been pretty heavy um and it's still a developing situation um any just like final thoughts on on the situation there or um just like i'm trying to find like a more hopeful note to end on because it's so doom and gloom right now but like thoughts on the situation or like ways that people can can help if they feel so compelled yeah uh i think uh you know, ways people can help. We've published some stuff on Coffee or Die where we can help uh, evacuate or we can help get or send the resources or have the resources available to, uh, you know, evacuate these people. And uh, outlook moving forward, though, like we said, it's very doom and gloom. Um, I don't think, I think it's on, like my personal p- opinion. I think it's just going to get worse. Uh, it's going to be something on like a historic, like a presence like a present now, like we, we're not going to hear certain things, but as like a historical, like what's going on behind the scenes? Like what is, what are our intelligence units doing? What are, what's, what's the, uh, like, what's, I, I want to think that they're like moving five steps ahead and they have like all these contingencies and they kind of know what they're doing. But then again, I look back at history. I'm like, yeah, this is probably just like a big, like big master. So, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. you look back at like the past, week and you're like okay this is not looking good from a logistics standpoint the whole weekend was a mess right and it's uh it's definitely like foreign policy wise like how the everybody like the world is watching all the moves that we're doing so um yeah it's what what happened with the immediate withdrawal is definitely gonna definitely gonna have its uh, consequences and we've already seen some of it and I think it's just going to get worse. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's definitely going to be one of those moments that shows up in the history books and like probably even novels that we're going to see 10, 20 years down the line, um, which is an interesting perspective. I never really think about the fact that we're like literally living in a historical moment right now and like try to project that forward. But like the books that you're reading now about how the CIA was involved in the Middle East you know, over the past 50 years, so many years, like, we're going to be reading books in a few decades about this moment, which is just mind boggling to me. It is mind boggling. <laughs> like, what, what are the history books going to say about what happened this week? Right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, hopefully you'll still be running uh, your late night history um, show or like, uh, I don't know, we won't have Instagram in 10, 20 years, probably, but there will be something like that. Um, So yeah, just um, talk a little bit more about late night history and kind of how you use that page now. I know you said like at one point you were posting every single night. I think you're a little bit less active now, like it's every other day or something. Uh, Most, I've been less active. Uh, So like the stories that I don't, or the times that I don't uh, 
like put up a story each night it's mostly when i'm like on vacation or just doing something or just like how I'm dare you <laughs> yeah but i try to do it like every night that was like so when i like uh started the page i called it late night history and i kind of gave myself the deadline from 8 p.m to midnight so like if i was out or if i was like doing something and i wouldn't have that like one like right at eight o'clock i have that window so i can mm. just put up something and uh yeah i did that every i try to do it every night and the good thing about it that i since it's like my page i can write about whatever i want so it could be like sports it could be crime it could be you know military history but i try to keep that with coffee or die and like you said what am i doing with like now with coffee i mean with uh late night history i just reshare all the history articles that i write for coffee or die on late night history and I also have a podcast where I kind of invite interesting or people I find interesting and respect. And we talk about history, whether it's like, whether you're like a Navy SEAL or you're like a um, army ranger, or you could just, or if you're just a historical mind, like if you want, I will openly invite you on my podcast if you want to talk history. <laughs> yeah, I was just listening um, to your episode with Luke Ryan, who's another coworker of ours. Um, recently and he, i mean he's got an incredible story of living in pakistan uh, and his school like literally being attacked by terrorists which is i i found out about that like two weeks ago or something when he posted <laughs> on instagram i was like wait i've worked with you for six months or whatever and didn't know that um but yeah so highly recommend that episode um and then like i mean how do you consistently find content for this like, I know you're a history buff, but doing it every night for so long and now like, you know, several times a week, do you ever run out of ideas? Yeah. So I got, I got some, uh, trade secrets, uh, <laughs> Ooh, no, exclusive but like, information here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So like I, so when I first started the page, I didn't make it like exclusively, like if you look at other history pages, some of them are like just photographs, then others are like, they just focus on world war one or World War II or something like that. And I knew if I would do that, I would get, probably get burnt out pretty quickly. And I just I just have other interests. So I just made it very broad so I can always just write about whatever I want. So if I went to like a restaurant, I'd be like, oh, I got clam chowder. What's the history of clam chowder? And I'll just post that up. Or I'll just, it's just whatever I find interesting is basically what I uh, write about. And um, trade, sec trade secrets. Oh yeah, so like say if I'm like, in like a in like a um like i don't have a lot of time or something like that i'll just try to find like a quote that like somebody did whether it's like an author and he's writing he or she's writing about their experience or like uh something one of the one of my favorite books is called the forgotten voices about the british special operations executive so they were a uh, paramilitary and intelligence unit during world war ii and it's based the book is not like a like it's not like a typical book it's basically basically like the oral histories of all the people that served in that unit so i can just take a quote from a little experience that they had about whatever they were doing and have it for my post <laughs> oh that's awesome that is actually a very useful trade secret um and i'm already <laughs> trying to think of ways to steal that in my mind <laughs> no that's such a good one though um and like you said like good for a, a slow can, can you have a slow news day in history uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> You've got all of uh, all of like the thousands of years of human existence to to draw on. Yeah. Um, 
And then in terms of like your stories for um, Coffee or Die, like, I mean, you truly have some of the like consistently like most interesting stories on the site. Like people love history. I don't know why that surprises me so much, but like mm. our readers are so into it. Um, and like some of the ones that you've had recently that I really enjoyed were like um, one earlier this month about Congress finally agreeing to award the um, Congressional Gold Medal to the Harlem Hellfighters who were the legendary all-Black World War One National Guard unit, which was like something you'd done multiple stories on, right? Yep, multiple stories. Uh, there was one about uh, just the unit itself. Um, there was another one about a graphic novel about a guy named, um, oh, wow, my, my mind's uh, blanking. Hold on, give me, a, his last name's Johnson. And he, um, he, he so like they, did a graphic novel about him and just like showed about all his heroism and um then the other and then like going back I, I my mind like it's just a series of rabbit holes so i apologize but the harlem Hellfighters, when i like and when i try to find these stories i try to find like interesting angles it's not just like the unit history or so one of the interesting things about the harlem Hellfighters is they helped introduce jazz like the, the jazz genre to Europe. So they oh, like, wow. yeah, there was a guy named uh, James Reese and he was like the band leader. And after like the armistice, I think I'm saying that correctly in, yes. uh, in, in world war one, after that, they uh, went, they like put down their weapons and gained or gathered uh, musical instruments and uh, put on shows, jazz shows in Europe. That's awesome. That's one of those things that like I wouldn't think would have a military connection like you don't think about the military spreading music and arts and culture right but it makes perfect sense because they're literally traveling all over the world yep um and then one of the other ones that like blew my mind was the civil war roots of the U.S. military's tattoo culture because like now obviously tattoos in the military are basically synonymous like all of these guys are just covered in tats. Um, but it's crazy seeing some of the pictures in that story of people covered basically from like the shoulders down in ink back in the 1800s. Yeah, for sure. And so the way that article, I uh, originally pitched it as like a brief history of tattoo culture in the US military. And I stumbled across that Civil War bit. And I was like, okay, I can make this like an individual article because you have all these pictures and you have all this content and you have people writing about it. There's actually a book, it's a fiction. So it's a historical fiction book and it's based off the uh, experiences of a Civil War veteran in, the, in that war. But he talks about the tattoo culture going on in there. I don't have it off the top of my head, but you'll have to go into the article and uh, it's it's in there. So you, you can get that. And then the very last one that I have to ask you about, because it was just like so bizarre. You had that listicle about um, the CIA using animals for spy missions. One of the examples that like was so, the most crazy one to me basically was um, the dead drop rat. What was that? <laughs> Yeah, so like in the like a dead drop is basically like a um, it's like it's when like um like a like a CIA officer say they're in like a foreign country and they want to meet up with a, it's called an asset so the like a spy and they want to meet up with them, uh, but they realize they realize they might be getting tailed by like say the KGB from Russia right so they don't want to meet up in a restaurant because they know they're getting watched. So they go to this, maybe a park or something like that. 
and they have a thing called the dead drop, which it could be stashed in like, I don't know, you can, you can imagine what it could be stashed in and then it could be what's stashed in there is like film or messages or just like typical types of intelligence. So what they found was we're going to stash it into the cavity of a dead rat because nobody will pick up a dead rat, right? So <laughs> I mean, yes, that logic is sound, but also why? <laughs> I know, I'd imagine you're like walking through the park and you're like, why is this person holding a dead rat? Like, what are they doing right now? <laughs> yeah, that part seems very suspicious. <laughs> um, and then like, you know this in the, the story, but like cats proved to be a problem for this plan. The CIA did not anticipate cats would want the rats. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So they like started experimenting. They were like dousing the dead rat in Tabasco hot sauce to uh, deter the cats. And then they um, they end up using some other type of substance that would, uh, you know, that's just crazy. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work, people. CIA <laughs> dipping dead rats in hot sauce. <laughs> if you were going to write a book, nonfiction, obviously, on it or or fiction, on any historical like moment or person or theme, what would it be? Yeah, so I've thought about this before and I would probably do a collection of uh, just like really cool, interesting people throughout history. Um, but I also, I know like a pretty talented, um, he was a tattoo artist for a little bit. He goes by the name Joey Nobody. And he's, uh, he's also like, uh, a very talented uh, graphic designer, designer, and I, I he'd probably be be the guy that'd be my artist for my graphic uh, novel. But I'd probably do maybe like a maybe like I personally think that uh, cops and firefighters are underrepresented in the historical like limelight. Like you can like like in like it, you can Google like all the Medal of Honor recipients from every US military war. But if you try to do that with like a, like a legendary cop or a legendary firefighter from your city or town, good luck, not gonna find much, right? So That's I think- That's really interesting. Yeah, so I think, um, and I, I've been doing that a little bit. Like I did one of the, I did an article, I met up with a guy named Ed Loader and he's the most decorated Boston firefighter in, in their almost 400 year history. And wow. Yeah, I think maybe like getting like him and then like a bunch of other, you know, guys and gals and putting putting together like a maybe a collection of just like unknown unknown heroes or I don't know, but I yeah, that's definitely like a uh, interest of mine, so. That's a really good idea. I had never thought about that, but you're like absolutely right. And there are like decorations for firefighters and cops, so I wonder why that's not more searchable. Right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Well, you got to make it happen. And you mentioned um, your tattoo artist friend, like for the graphic novel uh, possibility. Um, are you like a tattoo guy? Do you have a lot of tattoos yourself? I actually have zero tattoos. I thought about getting a tattoo. I don't know. I, I think um, I'm just, I think the art aspect of tattooing is fascinating. And uh, maybe one day I'll get a tattoo, but I just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's funny. Just because you mentioned him and then also with the, the, uh, interest in tattoos in military history I was like wait does Matt have tattoos I don't see any <laughs> and but also with him he's actually I don't want to like put any information out there that he doesn't maybe want out there but he's super like super involved with um 
let's say special operations units in the military and like he's a pretty historic guy so i think uh maybe one day i'll have to write his story too <laughs> oh that's awesome you already have the in and yep. he can illustrate it <laughs> yep <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for joining. I know there was one other um, organization that you wanted to, to talk about briefly before we kind of sign out here um, that you're involved with, which is called One More Wave. That's correct. Yep. So One More Wave. I've been involved with One More Wave since uh, 2017. And I started the way I started with them was uh, writing stories about the... Um, so what One More Wave is, is it's a, uh, a surfing nonprofit uh, that helps uh, wounded or disabled veterans achieve surf therapy and what we do is we um we provide like solutions so it could like that are customizable customizable to the veterans needs or their injuries and that could be like a uh, like a surfboard that has handles on it so like if you're you uh, you're missing an arm you can still hold on to the surfboard while you're surfing uh there's customizable wetsuits uh and there's also like an art therapy component on there so like say if you want to um, there was one story, um, that I really, uh, am drawn to is there was a Marine who, um, he would carry a picture of his wife and his two-year-old daughter, two-year-old daughter in his helmet when he went on uh, combat missions. So when he returned home, he wanted to, wanted to have that same picture onto his surfboard. So he knows that he's, uh, his wife and his daughter with him while he surfs. So we, we were able to put that on there and we can do other things like that. So we're really breaking trail on surfboard uh, customization that is uh, exclusive and not really anywhere else, happening anywhere else in the world. So that's awesome. Are, are you a surfer yourself or like, why were you drawn to this organization? Yeah. So I, I'm more of like a, uh, in Massachusetts, I, I like boogie boarding or uh, body surfing and swimming. Yeah, but, I was going to say, I feel like Massachusetts is not known for its like surf culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so like I, what drew me to One More Wave was basically just, I saw what they were doing and I was like, wow, I like, I just want to like help in some way. And that's when I was like starting out as like that transition from college. I graduated in 2016 and I, uh, so, and I was transitioning and trying to become a writer and they kind of gave me that chance I filled that void basically. Like they didn't have anybody sharing their, their um, stories about the veterans. And uh, it's just been one of the most rewarding experience experiences. And that's why I'm, I've stuck with them since. So. That's so cool. And uh, I had no idea you graduated in 2016. I was um, winter of 2015. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I feel like we're the youngins of, of coffee and die. Hell yeah. <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, Matt, it's been so great talking with you. Um, and yeah, I love what you're doing over at Late Night History. Like everyone should check out your Instagram page um, and the podcast, obviously. Um, do you have like, can you offer a teaser for what your next episode is going to be? Or is that still TBD? Uh, still TBD, but I think I have some like guests in the works. Um, I guess I, I guess to hold myself accountable. I will say that I want to have an Air Force PJ. He's like a pararescue man and talk about the history from Vietnam on. And I also, uh, you know, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally put you on the spot there with that. So now we got to um, make sure Matt has an Air Force PJ um, episode out within the next couple of weeks, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, awesome. And people can listen to that. I'm assuming like Spotify and, and wherever else you get podcasts. Yeah, everywhere. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, uh, Google, Google Podcasts. Awesome. <laughs> well, sweet. Well, uh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, go check out his show, everyone. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 